long as you say jug like hug, jug me. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mo mo. This is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Collar, I'm joined by a dream guest. He is the Member of Parliament for Burnaby South. Since 2017, he is the leader of the New Democratic Party, the NDP, the unofficial Canadian King of TikTok, and the best-dressed <laughs> man in the House of Commons. His memoir, Love and Courage, is available now. He is Jugmeet Singh. Jugmeet G. Satsrikal, how are you, sir? Oh, wow. Thank you. I'm doing well, brother. Thanks for having me on the show. I am so fortunate and happy to have you on. I know we've had some technical issues. I'm going to look at my engineer right now. We're recording. Everything is good. How's your day so far? My day's going well. I had a, I had a good day in Parliament, pushing the government to do more for people. And, and just that's, that's our focus. How do we make this country a better place so we can all live our best lives? Well, we're going to get into that a little bit, but hey, Jagmeet, did you know that this is two years in the making? We met at Sebastian Anderson's Labor Rights Law Office two years ago, and oh now we're here. Oh my goodness, that's right. I forgot <laughs> all about that. I should have known that. That's right. Wow. But listen, congrats on all the success. The, the podcast is doing really well. Lots of folks listen to it, and I hear lots of good things about it. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Let's jump right into it, Jugmeath. What did you think of the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, joining the anti-racism protest last Friday and kneeling with other demonstrators? You know, it was one of those moments where I was like, you know what? You're the Prime Minister of Canada. Like, you don't need to take a knee. You need to take a stand. You need to bring in changes. Like, normally you protest because you're fighting the, the system to try to get change. And then the system can't come in and say, yeah, 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 I'm going to kneel with you. It's like, well, why don't you just do some of the things that we need? Like, media <laughs> changes. So that's, that's what I thought about that. Like, you know, I went to show up at, a, at a, an important rally to meet with people, to hear them out. And, you know, I want to show solidarity. But, I mean, it's, it's different if you're the prime minister. You, you've got a bigger responsibility than showing with solidarity. You can just actually make the changes needed. Yeah, as an observer, that was sort of what I was thinking. I was thinking, you know, who are you protesting? <laughs> like, <no. laughs> totally. Like, you are the person in power that can control a, a vast amount of the changes that need to be done. Like you have direct control over them. And to put it out there, I am more than willing, in fact, pushing for those changes. So you've got, a, you've got someone that can actually help get it done. Just mm-hmm. start doing it. You know, like we talk about ending street checks or racial profiling or carding at the federal level. There's the RCMP, CSIS, CBSA, all who have powers of, of uh, policing-like powers over people. And we can make sure that they no longer engage in the arbitrary detention of somebody based on the color of their skin. Something that we know continues to go on. They could change the, the laws around sentencing so that indigenous and black people aren't overrepresented in, in jails. There's so much that can be done. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's weird that the prime minister shows solidarity at the protest, but sitting in his cabinet is Minister Bill Blair, who is Toronto's police chief, endorsed and defended carding, a practice which, of course, disproportionately targeted black men? Yeah, carding, carding as we know it, as, as the, one of the worst forms of, of police racial profiling, not only was overseen by, by Bill Blair, it was actually brought into effect. The carding, mm. which is 208 cards, it were basically contact cards where police were told, go out 
and stop as many racialized people in communities, anyone who looks suspicious to you and everyone who looks suspicious happened to be black and racialized and fill out cards on them. And this was a tactic that the police chief was proud of. He thought this would be a great way to make communities safer. And then uh, a whole bunch of activists, including a prosecutor, an old white guy who said, listen, I'm an old white guy. I'm telling you, carding is actually making communities less safe because it erodes the trust between the public and the police. And when the trust is broken and public doesn't want to work with the police, it actually makes communities less safe. So this whole practice has made things worse in, in Toronto. So yeah, it's bizarre that, that, uh, that not only did Prime Minister Trudeau make him a cabinet member, make him a minister, made him the minister to oversee the policing of Canada. <laughs> pretty, pretty ironic. While he takes the knee. So if you were put in the prime minister's office, and I hope you are one day, Jagmeet. Hey, thank you, man. How would you address systemic racism? Well, I mean, one other example before I get to the, the full and kind of a fulsome answer on that, I was just thinking about that, taking the knee. We just raised this issue today in Parliament that the Prime Minister took the knee to support folks that were talking about the over-policing of Black and Indigenous bodies, the over-incarceration of Black and Indigenous bodies. At the same time mm-hmm. that he took a knee, the Prime Minister's government was working on a bill to basically put people who applied for CERB and, and applied and maybe didn't follow all the technicalities, he put a law that would actually put those folks in jail. He, he put, mm-hmm. He's putting forward a bill that would actually uh, criminalize, like it would, it would risk jail time for somebody who instead of earning the $5,000 cutoff, maybe earned the $4,900 cutoff and then just checked off, yeah, it's close enough to 5000 Or someone who didn't lose a job because of COVID-19, but they had a job that was no longer available for them to take. They were offered a job, but mm-hmm. that job was no longer there. And for those minor kind of technicalities, he's willing to put forward a law that would actually fine those folks or put them in jail. And we know that when you put in a new criminal offense, it's going to disproportionately impact black and, and indigenous and racialized people and poor people. So on one side, he was taking a knee. On the other side, he was writing a law that was actually going to put more black and brown and indigenous people in jail. Like That to me is just unreal. So what I would do, I mean, right away, some really concrete things we could do, I was talking about, we could legislate in, in law that no RCMP can stop people without any reasonable grounds. Particularly, they cannot stop people based on the color of their skin. So they can't stop indigenous mm-hmm. or black people for no reason. That happens and they, we can legislate to stop it. On the, on the over-representation of indigenous people, black people in jails, we can immediately ensure that the sentencing no longer put people in jail for non- nonviolent offenses. Right now, mm-hmm. I, I was a lawyer and I represented so many clients that for minor administrative offenses, like they're on a bail condition that says they have to be home by 7 p.m. and it doesn't include an exception for work. The work got out late and they ended up getting home at 8 p.m. And a police was doing mm-hmm. a spot check and came by to verify that they were following their bail and they got charged for being out past curfew and they were, were looking at jail time over that. Like those things should never happen anymore. And we could change the laws to make sure these, these administrative and nonviolent offenses don't result in people going to jail. That would be a concrete change. We also know that more than that is there's this idea of policing not being the response. Right now, if someone is in trouble, we have this really horrible example of Regis Korchinski Paquette in Toronto um, mm-hmm. and uh, DeAndre Campbell in Brampton and uh, Chantal Moore in Edmondson. These are, you know, we're talking about DeAndre and Regis were, were black. Regis, black woman, and DeAndre, uh, also from the black community, and um, Chantal Moore, indigenous woman. All three of them 
uh, were either wellness checks or mental health issues and police were called, police responded and they were killed. That mm. shows that the police shouldn't be the response. Instead of putting money towards policing, maybe we should put money towards mental health workers or healthcare workers that respond to people's wellness checks or healthcare or mental health checks. So what we really need to do and what I would encourage is putting, reprioritizing our funding and putting more money into making communities safer with more affordable housing, better access to healthcare, more jobs, better after-school programs and just social programs in general. Those make communities safer. So really reimagining what would it take to make a community safer? What would give people better services and put our money there instead of putting it all towards policing? Mm-hmm. So in the reprioritization of funding and the allocation of resources, are you suggesting that the federal government should defund the police? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm saying is that what people are, when people hear that, it doesn't, I don't know if, what that means to a lot of people, but the concept really is, is, is that reprioritizing. Like, let's take our money and use it in a way that's, best for communities. And it's not actually the best way to spend money putting it into the police. In many cases, it's actually the wrong approach. Like the examples mm-hmm. that I gave you, you know, when someone's not feeling well, or if they've got a, they need a wellness check or a mental health concern, police shouldn't be the response. And right now they are the only response for many communities. That's what people do. And I think we need to change that. We need to put money towards healthcare. In a lot of places that are at risk or where there's concerns around crime, we found the evidence has shown that if you actually make it more affordable for people, give them a better access to jobs and education and social programs, that actually makes the community a lot safer than hiring 50 new police officers. So in that case, mm-hmm. let's actually, like our goal is to make community safer. If there's a better way to do it, let's do that instead of going down the same path that is not shown to work. So that's really what people are asking for. And I absolutely support that. Jagmeet, you've been extremely heartfelt against racism. Why weren't you vocally against Bill 21 in Quebec, a systemically racist bill which clearly targets Muslims, Sikhs, and other people of color? I mean, you weren't polling well in Quebec. You put Trudeau in a position where he accused you of not standing up to racism. (laughs) Why didn't you just swing for the fences and say, you know what, as prime minister, no province can pass discriminatory legislation like this under my watch? Well, I mean, I fought it every single day. Every I went to Quebec regularly in that campaign, and that was the number one question I was asked. And each and every day, I, I fought back and said it was wrong. And we had this really interesting thing that happened over the course of the campaign. Well, I believe that we need to not only change laws, but we need to change hearts and minds. If, if mm-hmm. a law is, is a racist, discriminatory law, but the people support it and you fight the law, it can, it can come back again. But if you can win over the people, then you can ensure that that type of law never happens again. And there was an interesting poll done at the start of the campaign and before the campaign. There was pretty widespread, overwhelming support for the bill. At the end of the campaign, and I don't want to take all the credit for it, but I certainly played a role, we, there was a poll done about that, the support for that, that bill, Bill 21, and the support had gone below the majority. So it was about 40% support when it used to be 70, 70% support. So I think what we were able to do in the campaign and lots of activists and organizers were able to show is that that bill doesn't actually make a better community. It doesn't actually do the thing that they, they were trying to say it's going to make you know, society less, uh, more, I guess, religiously neutral. And in fact, it just discriminates certain people. So I I called it out every single day. And the one thing that I was clarifying is that, you know, it's currently facing a legal challenge and that legal challenge Mm -hmm. is going to go. Once it comes to the Supreme Court, naturally, the federal government has a role to intervene at that point. And I think that uh, a law like that doesn't have any place in Canada. It's going to follow its course. 
Um, and and I'm going to be there to fight it every step of the way. So it sounds like what you're saying is you were trying to win over hearts and minds as opposed to saying, you know, this law would never happen. You wanted a culture change, knowing that there was legal mechanisms in place as a backstop. Yeah, there was already legal mechanisms. It was already being challenged in court. It was already making its way and it's still making its way through the court system. And it will see its day eventually in the Supreme Court. And I'm confident this is the type of law that would be struck down because it is discriminatory. And uh, But in the meantime, instead of fighting that legal argument, I was making the argument to people, hey, look at me. I'm somebody that, that proudly and loudly supports the rights of Soji community, sexual orientation and gender identity expression community. I'm there all day long mm-hmm. fighting for the rights. I believe in a woman's right to choose without any equivocation all day long. And I'm someone who wears a turban. But you got someone mm-hmm. like Sheer who doesn't, and he openly does not believe in a woman's right to choose. He openly doesn't support or go to any <laughs> pride events. Right? You got someone like that sure. who doesn't actually support women's rights or the rights of of have Soji community. So, I mean, what, what does this bill actually do? If you want to protect a woman's right to choose and if you want to protect the Soji community, let's make better protections in place for those communities. Let's actually improve access to abortion services if that's, if that's the important goal. And I believe it is and it should be an important goal. So I think that argument, I had to repeat that basically every single time I stepped into Quebec, the media would ask me this question and we spent a lot of time campaigning there and I think that that argument was persuasive. You, you saw Sheer in some of the debates doubling down on his position that he didn't really support a woman's right to choose and didn't support the Soji community. And, and then people in Quebec were kind of like, you know what, maybe we're looking at this the wrong way. And I think that's an important thing. We've got to win over people. When it comes to hate, I think we should call it out and denounce it. We also have to acknowledge that hate comes from a place of insecurity. When people are insecure, Mm -hmm. when they're afraid, when they're economically insecure, it allows for hate to grow. And so we need to get at not just the hate, but the underlying fear by building a safer society, a society where we've got better social safety net in place. And so people feel less insecure. And I think that's how we get at some of the insecurity that leads to the fear and to the hate. Sure. Let's shift gears to foreign policy. Sure. You haven't shied away from criticizing President Donald Trump. <laughs> no. <laughs> but when it comes to China, who we depend on for imports, you haven't been as critical. When you have a country that has two of our citizens wrongfully detained and has one to two million of its own citizens in re-education camps because they subscribe to the wrong religion, shouldn't you be calling them out just as much as you call out Donald Trump? I think it's absolutely important to call out China. And, and I've been, uh, I, and I will now on your show, and, and I have in the past, called out China for the, the injustice going on in Hong Kong and the clampdown on protesters there and the clampdown on democratic rights. Uh, the Uyghur are facing massive human rights violations, and, and those need to be called out. I also, though, believe that there is a there is a latent racism when it comes to China. When we hear some of the conservatives bashing China's influence in the world. And I look at that and I say, I don't, I don't know if that's actually merited. When we look at America's influence in the world, its history of intervening in legitimate democracies, the CIA's history in overturning democratically elected governments that were pro the people and, and you know, more socialistic in nature and not favorable to what America believed was in their interest. And America's massive influence in, in the global kind of geopolitical uh, state of affairs. So uh, I think some of, uh, we need to be able to call out the, any, anyone who's a violator of human rights, whether it's President Trump or whether it's 
uh, the Chinese government. But at the same time, we also, I think, really need to acknowledge that we can't let uh, kind of the fear of the other create a, a, an even more overt kind of uh, criticism of a country because of, of this latent racism. And I think sometimes when I hear some of the conservative rhetoric in the attack of China, that it's, it's not based in a pure human rights perspective, but it's based in the sphere of the other. And I do hope that there is a separation made. And I think that's something in BC that's become a very hot topic is some people conflate the two yeah. in terms of the CCP and Chinese people. And others are saying, no, no, these are two separate issues. And I think that is something that leadership does have to demonstrate and say, no, we're not talking about Chinese people. We're talking about the Chinese government. Right. I think that's an important distinction. But I also think, I mean, when it comes down to it, you know, people are a little bit uncomfortable with the fact that China is becoming and more and more a world player and they're a, a world superpower. And there was a kind of a hegemony, hegemony with, with certain countries that have had longstanding power in the world and people feel uncomfortable with China's kind of rise in power. And I think that there's no, there's no more fear of, of China having influence in the world than it is of the American government having influence in the world. I think really we need to be critical of anyone who uh, exerts too much influence and that interferes with people's democracies, whoever it may be. But isn't there a difference when you have a democracy like the United States or like England before it that does have certain democratic institutions and maybe they're not perfect and and they have a checkered history, Yeah. but there's a difference between that and a authoritarian dictatorship? I would just look at the outcome. Like if you've got, I mean, the, America's track record in terms of wars around the world, the number of people that they've killed, um, and you look at China's influence around the world, China hasn't been sending their troops to interfere with other countries and resulting in massive instability. Not that I'm a defender of China by any means, but I mean, look at America's history. America's got a, a pretty horrible history when it comes to their human rights abuses and involvement and wars that they've conducted, and in some cases, without any evidence or any basis. It was widely established that um, George Bush had no justification for going to war and, and mm -hmm. that there was, there was really no evidence to support that. And he still went ahead and did it. Um, this, is what, this is what America has done time and time again. And I just, I point that out because though America has a democracy, that hasn't stopped their, their, their human rights violations globally. And it's just something sure. to point out that you know, people are quick to criticize one country, but don't look at, at the ongoing and historic, really massive human rights uh, abuses that, that countries have done that kind of get the past because they're, they're North American or because they're Western or European. On the topic of China, the federal government is currently reviewing the buyout of a Toronto-based company called TMAC Resources, which also owns a gold mine in Nunavut. And the buyout is by a Chinese mining company, Shandong. The location of the mine has geopolitical importance, and it could be argued that it certainly has a lot of potential wealth for the Inuit in the region. And the government has said that all investments by foreign state-owned enterprises, such as Shandong, would be subject to enhanced scrutiny. Do you have a stance on TMAC or Canadian companies in general, especially those in the natural resource sector, being sold to foreign state-owned or state-affiliated companies? This is where I think we need to take a really strong stance on on protecting kind of our Canadian sovereignty and ensuring that we've got a strong checks and balances in any domain, but particularly where 
there is a, an interrelation with indigenous peoples or first peoples of the land. So Inuit, First Nations or Métis. I think there's an even, an even greater responsibility to ensure that there is the accountability that we have when it's a Canadian company. There is a higher Higher, a greater ability of, of accountability and, and checks and balances that we can place on on countries or companies that are that are domestic that are within Canada. Uh, so I think that for many reasons we sh- we need to right now uh, be vigilant about about hostile takeovers. This is uh, this is a phenomenon that's happening while the the crisis has has kind of disparately impacted different different businesses that kind of leave them volatile or vulnerable to a takeover because. They're not as cash, uh, their cash flow isn't as strong as it normally is. So it mm-hmm. allows them to be more easily taken over. I think the, the federal government does play an important role in preventing that from happening where there is um, some of the criteria that you outlined, but, but just the general sense of having Canadian autonomy over our natural resources. Jagmeet, I want to end on talking about COVID-19 and I have a couple questions here. Your party has had a lot of influence on the federal COVID-19 response, as pointed out by Tom Parkin in McLean's magazine. The expansion of CERB, the expansion of the wage subsidy, the emergency student benefit. But a lot of my friends on the left feel like you're not visible enough, you're not out there enough to take well-warranted credit. Do you feel like the NDP's influence on the COVID-19 response is undercut when your agenda is effectively absorbed by the governing liberals? I think it's a challenge. And, and I, I want to say this uh, just because it's a fact, uh, and, and I'm proud of it, but every single federal response to this crisis has been either an idea that we proposed or something that we've improved on significantly. And, and that really goes from every single aspect of the response, from, from the CERB to the wage subsidy to help for seniors, help for students. Every single one of those are something that, that has the, the, DNA, the DNA or the marks of the NDP all over it. And, and I'm proud of that fact. Uh, we can't control you know, if the media covers those stories or not. And I can say on a personal level, I'm, I've always been more interested in getting the wins for people and making sure that people's mm-hmm. lives are better than being someone that really fights for the credit. And I always felt that, you know, in a crisis, while people are struggling and worried about the future, it really would be a bit tone deaf for me to try to clamber and say, well, you know, that good thing that happened, that was me that did it. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> hopefully, you know, hopefully the history books and hopefully, you know, the post-pandemic the post, uh, uh, response will show not that the Liberal government did what was needed because they just needed to kind of be encouraged or there was a good idea that they took. I want the truth to be, and, and, I, and I hope I can be a part of writing that truth just so folks know, this is something we had to fight for tooth and nail. Like every step of the way, the government didn't ask us for our opinion and then, you know, Justin Trudeau went out and said, okay, cool, you know, we got this idea from the New Democrats, we're going to go and do it. We had to fight them. We had to threaten. We had to push. We had to demand every step of the way, even for something as, as obvious as the fact that the government initially was going to give students with dis- disabilities 250 less dollars, just arbitrarily. You know, a student mm-hmm. with a disability, we're going to give them 250 less. Why would they do that? I don't know. And we had to fight them to say, no, if you're a student with a disability, you're going to have a harder time finding a job. You're obviously going to have more expenses in life. They need the full 2000 For a parent with, with children or someone with children going to, back to school, Again, they were saying, oh, we're going to give a parent uh, 250 less, arbitrarily again. And it was a lot of callous decisions this government 
the Liberal government really wanted to deny people help. And now the fact that they're trying to penalize with a criminal threat people who needed help during the pandemic really kind of shows the, their lens and their perspective. It didn't have that humanity or that compassion. And we had to fight with them to get it. So I hope mm-hmm. um, that, that that story is known. I guess maybe folks listening to this podcast will know it. But it's important to know that you know, the Liberal government wasn't going to do these things out of the goodness of their heart or because they were willing to collaborate. We fought them to achieve these things and people were better for it. If we were in government, though, I could say the response would have been even even better. But we were able to fight for some real important things. And I'm proud of the, the work that our team was able to do. And I'm thankful that people have been better off because of our work. One thing this crisis has really highlighted is the gaps in a lot of our social institutions. Mm-hmm. And I want to go back to my friends on the left that say that you aren't out there enough. Do you feel like you are getting enough media time to communicate with Canadians on the gaps in our COVID-19 response and generally in our institutions that the NDP and that you are trying to fill? Well, I mean, in terms of being out there, I'm fighting every single day. And, and the media will, will naturally cover the prime minister because they want to know what the prime minister has to say every day. So that kind of floods mm-hmm. out a lot of the other voices. And, and, and I understand that that's just a challenge that is a reality that I'm up against. But I mean, we've been trying to say that we don't want to go back to normal, you know, day in, day out. When, when this, this crisis has happened, we've said that it, it hasn't created the problems, it's exposed the problems. And to your point about mm-hmm. inequalities or the insufficiency of our social programs, it's exposed that EI in the beginning was the government's response. And the reason why we actually have served in the first place is we said EI only covers 40% of Canadians. And there's, you know, it's on the record, so we'll show this in the future at some point. The prime minister is saying, no, no, we're just going to make EI easier to access and it's going to be good enough. And I had to come back and retort saying, no, EI does not apply to the vast majority of Canadian workers because it was designed mm-hmm. in the 70s and designed for a different reality. It doesn't understand contract work or precarious work or work that doesn't uh, fit within the traditional model. So we, we've been fighting for this idea that we don't want to go back to normal because normal is where you know, the most important workers in society were the least paid. Normal is a uh, mm-hmm. healthcare system starved of funding. Normal was long-term care homes being the ground zero for the deaths in COVID-19. We want to build something better. We want to go forward to a better Canada where we take better care of one another. And that means a better social safety net that is more resilient, that builds a more resilient Canada. And a healthcare system that covers you from head to toe so that your medication coverage isn't dependent on your drug benefits from your job, but that everyone knows if they go to a doctor, they can also afford the medication they need to get healthy and uh, including dental care and a host of other things that should be included, not in a, a hope that someone gets the benefits at a job, but as a part of our universal healthcare system. So yeah, we're, we're reimagining a future where we take better care of one another and we're going to lay out that vision. We've got a, a host, a series of these town halls that we're doing virtually where we're talking about what is what does the future of work look like? What does a better social safety net look like? What does healthcare look like for the future? And um, I'm proud to. And let's get yeah, yeah. let's get into healthcare for a second. I love that you have been hammering the Trudeau government on long-term care facilities. You're going after the for-profit yes. long-term care facility lobbyists that met with the prime minister's office oh, wow. twelve you know times. This. Yes. 
Oh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm up to date. Wow. They met with the prime minister's office 12 times in the month when cases and deaths were accelerating the most yes. in this country. You've called for the end to private long-term care facilities. Correct. But since it is a provincial responsibility, with the balance of power that you hold, how are you going to push the government to ensure that long-term care is included in the Canada Health Act and large infusions of federal money is sent to those provinces to meet the new federal standards because a lot of commentators are saying that the NDP can't afford a stamp election. and Therefore, you don't have a lot of leverage to get substantial movement on this or on pharmacare or your other priorities when it comes to universal health care from the Trudeau government. Well, people don't know. I, I'm in this for, for people, so I'm willing to take it to the line. And, and I don't care if we don't have money. I'll go to an election anytime to fight for people. So I, I'm kind of a, I'm a risk taker. And I take risks for people. So the, the Liberal government shouldn't in any way think that I'm not willing to pull the plug at any point in time to, to fight for people. But what we're, what we're saying is when it comes to long-term care, uh, it's clear that we need to build national standards, much like the Canada Health Act. We can, we can establish those. And really, it comes down to a commitment for federal spending. If the federal government's willing to pony up the money, then provinces would absolutely buy into something that is similar to the Canada Health Act. It would be very difficult for any province or any premier to say no to establishing national standards after we've seen the devastation and the really appalling military reports that have come out of Quebec and Ontario of the conditions mm-hmm. of long-term care homes. And looking at provinces and territories to establish what would be some good national standards and the principles of the Canada Health Act, You know, some of the basic things like public delivery of care, universality, that it's accessible, that it's uh, portable, you can take it from province to province. Uh, these principles are things that have helped build um, a good healthcare system that we can improve on, but definitely created a good foundation. And we can use those same principles for our long-term care. The, the profit uh, motive has to be removed. And that's something that we can, we can at least lead on. You know, it's not something that we can necessarily uh, impose on provinces, and nor should we. We have a federalist constitution that requires cooperation, but we certainly can lead. And that's what I've been asking the prime minister. Take a stance and say, yeah, given the evidence, it's clear the for-profit homes have been the sites of some of the worst and most appalling conditions of seniors where staff were afraid to use new medical equipment like syringes. They were reusing syringes between seniors hmm. because they were afraid of the cost. If that's not a compelling argument to say that there's no place for cost in the care of your seniors, I can't imagine a more appalling and just horrible example that syringes were reused, that people weren't using Mm -hmm. medical equipment, that they were using expired medication. This is all happening at the same time these for-profit long-term care homes, the top four of them, were putting out uh, in the past year uh, shareholder dividends of over $1.5 billion dollars. There's this one company that in the same quarter during the COVID response, they, they handed out $10 million in shareholder dividends and they only spent 300000 on COVID equipment. Wow. That is shocking. I can get the name wow. of the company to you, but that's, that's, a, that's a one single pro for-profit long-term care home that in the same span of time during the worst of COVID-19, they, they had massed $10 million in shareholder dividends. That means money they gave away to give back to their shareholders, but they had only registered about $300,000 in, in COVID-related equipment. Like that to me hmm. is just disgusting. Appalling. Yeah. Yeah. 
Jagmeet, I know you're on a tight schedule. I appreciate your time. I hope we can do it in person. You got to give me at least 90 minutes so we can bro down, okay? Yeah, it'd be awesome. It'd be great to vibe <laughs> out with you. Talking about, you know, all the all the wild and zany ideas I have, like making sure that everyone has access to dental care and healthcare and, and medication <laughs> so coverage. <wild. laughs> and, you know, making sure that when we invest in, uh, in companies, that they're not companies that are hiding their money in offshore tax havens, that they're companies Absolutely. that are going to their fair share here in Canada. Yeah, I'd love to chat more about these things. In the meantime, how do people follow you, support you, and, and support the NDP? Uh, well, you can check us out, ndp.ca. Uh, check out the website. You can support and donate that way. If you want to check out uh, my social media, I'm on, I'm on all the major platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Uh, it's uh, the Jigmeet Singh. The king of TikTok. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm all right. I'm out there. The, the Jigmeet Singh on Twitter and Jigmeet Singh on everything else. Oh, TikTok's also the Jigmeet Singh. And uh, yeah, uh, definitely follow the work that we're doing. And if you like the stuff, you can you can reach out to us on the website, ndp.ca. Can you follow me on Twitter, Jigmeet G? Can we be Twitter bros? You know what? I'm going to do it right now while we're speaking. So it's going to be live. I'm going to do it right now. Watch it. <laughs> So it's going to show up on your feed while we're talking. Van Color. At Van Color. Yeah. It is. Mo Amir. That's correct. Follow. I hit you with the follow, Mo. All right. I'm I'm refreshing it. You are there. Amazing. Thank you so much. (laughs) Jagmeet G, you got my vote last time, but the expectations are high. Keep up the great work, my friend, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Moji. People, how surreal was that? The MP for Burnaby South, the first person of color to lead a federal political party in this country. He's the leader of the NDP and quite possibly your next Prime Minister of Canada. He is Jagmeet Singh. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs>